You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Today's guest is an author of biblical fiction, an avid reader, and pastor's wife who loves reading and writing biblical fiction. When she's not serving in various areas at church or trying to stay on top of mountains of dishes, you'll most likely find her enjoying a good book and a cup of coffee. She co-hosts Behind the Story podcast, a Christian author interview show on YouTube and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. When not writing or trying to wrangle social media, she is trying to get her rescue dog to be cute on command for Instagram Reels. Naomi Craig, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here today. We are so glad to have you. So your bio mentions you're a pastor's wife and author and that you have fun with dishes, coffee, and podcasting. So before we dive into the deep stuff, let's start with something easy. Your coffee, do you like it light and sweet or dark and strong? Well, actually, this summer I've gone into having iced coffee. So I don't know if that disowns me from the serious coffee world. I used to be one of those who could do hot coffee all the time. But right now, it's pretty warm. I just brew up a pot of coffee and make a simple syrup with honey and then put in some oat milk to make it all creamy and sometimes some vanilla or maybe even some mint in there. Oh, fancy. That sounds good and very refreshing in the summer. (laughs) I was actually out of creamer this morning and I was desperately like (laughs) hacking out spoonfuls of ice cream to put in my coffee. (laughs) What is it called? Affogato or something? No, it turned out all right, though. You mean it has a name? Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Oh, but that's cool that you put honey in it because honey and coffee is a different flavor, but it's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like to I like to do things a little bit more naturally. So I'll try to do honey where I can. But Nice. So how did you get your start in Christian historical fiction? Excellent question. I was reading in the Bible where being a biblical fiction author, that's where my inspiration comes from, of course. But And I had this thought with Rahab in the Battle of Jericho. She hides two spies. And then we don't really hear about her, her for until in Jesus's lineage. But then I had this thought, like, what if one of the two spies was her biblical husband that's mentioned, Salma? So I just started imagining from there and went from there. <laughs> yeah, that is such a cool story when you think about the whole city has heard of Israel. And she says the whole city is on edge and scared to death because we've heard of your conquests and everything coming through how the Red Sea was parted and all that stuff. And so was it just because of that or was it something more that made her hide the spies? It's not really completely explained what her motive is to just hide these two men and not turn them over because you would think that if they're scared of them, they would try to conquer them. But no, she's going to roll with it. So it's that's interesting. That was your first one. Yeah, that's she's committing treason against her country, her city and what gave her this courage. And not only is she a Canaanite harlot, she's also listed in the line of Jesus. She's one of the five ladies mentioned. And you can find out her son is Boaz, who is Ruth's husband. So you can see this pattern coming through. And it's just beautiful to see how the Lord can use 
broken lives and restore them. Yeah, Rahab's story really is interesting. I know when I took my biblical courses with Liberty University, Dr. Elmer Towns, he said that at the time in that culture, it was very likely that Rahab was like given the apartment likely by her father and it was almost like a hotel. And then as part of the service, she was a prostitute. And I always thought it was just, well, I was like, oh, that's horrible coming from the culture that I come from. And culturally speaking, this was the norm for this woman. And then to marry Salma and just what she, the freedom that she must have experienced in the Israelite culture and getting to know this God who loved her. That's really a beautiful story. Really amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because yes, the Lord gave her abundant freedom, but at least in my personal experience, it's not an overnight, the Lord tells me something and bam, I'm up to the degree of Paul as a Christian. You know what I mean? It takes a long time for me to learn a lesson. So I did include some struggles that I imagined that she would be going through with the baggage she carried from that lifestyle. So Yes. And writing biblical fiction, I can imagine that the research is fairly taxing. I I mean, I can get online and see pictures from 1800s. (laughs) It's a little harder for you. Um, Apart from reading the Bible, like you said, what other avenues of research do you use when writing your stories that take place in ancient times? That's an excellent question. For Rahab, there's not a whole lot written historically. So there's a lot left up to the imagination. But getting into Ezekiel's song, which is my coming up book, is there's Babylonian Chronicles, there's Josephus mentions it. So there's quite a bit later that tells you what's been done. So you can do a cross reference, if you will, from like, you can find ancient Egyptian historical medical texts. So you can still find those floating around online, translated into English, of course, and then based off of what you see in the Bible and other parts of it. As far, I am a very visual learner. So even shows like The Chosen, even though that's obviously been filmed just in the last couple of years, just showing the simple pattern of life. And obviously the technology even changed from Old Testament to New Testament, but just showing that simple pattern of life that at least takes you away from 21st century technology and you can understand what the houses could have looked like and what the interactions with the people in the society could have looked like based off of other people's imaginings. But yeah, seeing someone else's interpretation helps your imagination wrap around it. Because like you say, yeah, it's so wildly different from the way we live now. Yeah, it's pretty neat. There is now this, of course, is many centuries later, but right where I'm at in Arizona, there's an archaeological park. And so it's a pretty well preserved little town of the Native Americans who used to live here in this area. So even just going and walking around their little, their stone buildings and reading the historical plaques, that can help me too, because again, it's taking me away from the, what I'm currently used to with the technology and stuff like that. And just imagining, okay, well, here's what a city could have looked like. And uh, that helps me lose a couple of years for, for the historical research. And I think when you're writing, you're producing something, you're giving out. And it's so, so important to be able to step away from the keyboard or your notepad and just be able to see and experience those things that inspire creating historical fiction. 
Now, in your research and writing, I imagine that you find inspiration in prayer and different things. And I know just sometimes in the story, you get stuck and you just have to like stop and pray and rely on God and be like, where do I even go with this story? So now you've completed Ezekiel's song and it's going to be released this summer. Is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God's laid on your heart that you would like to share with our readers? Yeah, it's specifically about Ezekiel's song. So if you're familiar with Ezekiel, he's in Babylon. He's called as a prophet to Jerusalem. But wait, there's more. He's paralyzed. The Lord symbolically binds him for Judah and for Israel's sins. So he's paralyzed. And so if you're doing some research on this, there are some people who say, well, he couldn't have been paralyzed for the entire 14 months or whatever the time frame was because the Lord also tells him to fix his food and the Lord also tells him to do this and to go here and that sort of thing, which I do believe the going, I believe what I read, but now how according to my research was visions. He went back to Jerusalem in visions is how I see the scripture. But for these other things, I don't know, it just didn't ring true that he was he could have been released part of, he had a day, an hour off a day from being paralyzed. You know what I mean? Like, so I just in researching, I asked caregivers, tell me about being a caregiver for someone who is bed bound. And I really wanted to honor that because Ezekiel had a time frame of when he was going to be released from the paralysis. But usually those who are bed bound don't. So I wanted to honor the lives of those who have given so much and usually have made a lot of sacrifices and they're rather unseen as being primary caregiver for their loved one. And so I just wanted to honor that. And of course, culturally, Ezekiel is one of the prophets mentioned as having a wife. And so culturally, the wife would have been fixing the food, caring for the household. So it wasn't, I don't feel it was a stretch for me to say that he had her making the food and being a caregiver, and he was full-time paralyzed. I believe that would work. Of course, that is my interpretation. So that's just how I see the story playing out. But I wanted to honor the caregivers and those who are bed-bound because they don't usually have an end date to their trial. So, Yeah, that is important because I guess it can be easy to think about the person who's, and it's absolutely appropriate for us to want to come alongside the person who is experiencing this illness, whatever it may be. But also at the same time, it's not an either or, but a both and to support whoever the primary caregiver is, because it's, it's a huge part of their life too. Yeah. And some of the thing, I, it was just very sad, like at the beginning, the onset of illnesses caregivers were provided with lots of, oh, how can I help? Well, I can come and sit with the person, you blah, blah, blah. And then eventually, uh, overall consensus was that the, the volunteering to help wore off. And all the casseroles that came in at the beginning, they stopped. Like people move on with their lives and they forget that this is an ongoing trial and a burden. And you don't, not that your loved one is a burden, of course, but just there's a lot extra going on caring for someone who needs 24-hour care. So if you are in that situation, my heart goes out to you. And I don't even begin to imagine what your life is like right now, but just know that you're seen and you are loved. 
Well, this is actually a great transition into official questions about the book, so I'll go ahead and read the back cover copy. A prophet's heart broken, a woman's joy gone. What does Yahweh have planned for his people? On the brink of Jerusalem's demise, devoted priest Ezekiel sees the insincerity of Judah's worship. Despite his efforts to call the people back to true worship of Yahweh, priests, artisans, valiant warriors, and royals are exiled to Babylon. When God gives him messages of continued judgment for the people in his homeland, his heart breaks. How can he minister to the people from so far away? The presence of the Lord is tangible when Shiriel sings in the temple, and her voice prepares the hearts of many to worship. When she is exiled to Babylon, her faith is shaken. Does the Lord's presence extend beyond Jerusalem and his holy temple? Ezekiel is struck mute and paralyzed as he begins his prophetic ministry, and Shiriel devises a plan to get the Lord's message back to the unfaithful people of Judah. Shiriel struggles with discontentment as serving the Lord looks nothing like she'd imagined. Can she provide for her family and carry out her husband's ministry when her joy is gone and her own dreams are placed on hold? I'm glad you're writing this story. We get a lesson in biblical history and faith. So how would you say that reading through this book in the Bible and also writing Ezekiel's song has influenced your life directly? Well, I have a unique perspective that I am a pastor's wife. And there was a time my husband was part-time at the church. He was full-time with the county. And then he was also attending seminary. So there was a lot of things that needed to get done. Somebody needed a food box from the food pantry or whatever. And that kind of fell on me. And I was glad to help to serve in that capacity. So I have that perspective of how serving, even though it's not necessarily what you planned, there's times that I've had to step up and shoulder part of the ministry. And so it's definitely impacted me. The Lord helped me as I was writing Ezekiel's song, helped me to go through and process some of those things. And now we're at a different church where there's so many people who are able and willing and already serving. And my husband is here full time. So it's shifted considerably. But then it was like, well, what do I do with myself now? Because... (laughs) I'm not quite as needed, which is, this is, enjoy that. I'm glad there's more people serving the Lord in this capacity, but it was still a transition to try to understand what my my new jobs were, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I think God does call us to, to work in a ministry that's not necessarily our own, or at least it doesn't have our name on it, so to speak. And But we're still going to be integral to it. And that's okay. That's a good place to be. But yeah, it's cool then when he leads you out of that. And it's like, okay, wow, what's next, Lord? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And you get to see other people serving in those capacities. I know sometimes different ministers can fall into doing everything because their call and their passion. It's really wonderful when the ministries can be divided between the servants and the saints of the church and just they can learn and serve in those capacities. So yeah, everybody using their own gifts and serving how the Lord has put on their hearts. So it's beautiful when that happens. It is. It is. So were there any surprises that you ran into when researching this story? It was interesting that my my husband, um, so I will go in and 
scan all of his library books in his office and I'd be like, oh, well, I think I need to borrow re- this historical part of the Bible book. I think that needs to go on my shelf now. I'll go and steal his, all, all of his books. He goes everything ever online now, so I don't think he minds too much. But uh, so, yeah, like I was talking, just brainstorming about Ezekiel. And I guess people thought he was like schizophrenic because of all of the random and sometimes bizarre prophecies and symbols that God asked to do. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. So well, let's go back and see, was Ezekiel schizophrenic? And just like researching, I think it was a medical document about somebody who had medical knowledge. Here's the, here are the symptoms of schizophrenia. Here's what Ezekiel had. And so his conclusion was, no, he wasn't. But it was just, that was interesting. I'm like, I don't know that anybody would have told me that if I hadn't heard it from from my seminary trained husband. So Yeah, I guess I never thought of that either. But for these prophets who are receiving visions and hearing voices and all this kind of stuff, yeah, that, that does present similarly to the symptoms of a medical diagnosis. That would be hard to believe someone who was like intentionally eating so he is, I'm sure you're familiar with Ezekiel 49 bread, like it's like superpower bread type now. But back then, where it comes from is it's supposed to be a siege diet. So he's in this land and he they had pretty good freedoms in Babylon as the Jews, as the Hebrews. And he's intentionally eating very small portions of food and drinking very small portions of water. Like that would be hard to believe someone when he had access to more, like why are you doing this? This is crazy. And of course, the Lord says, maybe they will listen and maybe they will not, but they will know that a prophet has been in their midst. So there you go. Have fun with your new job. Nobody's going to listen to you, but... <laughs> but I've called you to do it anyway. So I had Shirelle going through that journey of serving the Lord looked like serving in the temple and being a singer, a musician before the Lord. How does that look now that her husband is paralyzed? And then just as Shiri or Shiriel had that journey, Ezekiel has that too, because he was he was in line to be a priest. He was, you can be ordained into the service of the Levites at the age of 20, according to the Bible, but you can't be ordained as a priest until you're 30. And how I read the scripture is that he was taken away before that at the age of 25. He'd been in, in Babylon for five years before he had his first vision of the Lord. And... So I'm like, well, why are they calling him a priest all throughout Ezekiel if he's not legally allowed to be a priest yet? And of course, he's not in Jerusalem. So you can't be a priest at the temple if there's no temple. So I imagine that he was an apprentice. Like he was in that priestly service as a Levite beforehand, and he was on trajectory to make priest when he turned 30. So it was just, it's just interesting to to dive in and find all the traditions and stuff like that to to see how could this worked for him out in Babylon. So, And so he has his own journey of serving God doesn't look like what he planned either. And they have to learn how to work together and make the ministry work. Yeah. Well, as they're both on this journey together, I'm assuming that there is a certain romance element. So what would you say was the most endearing thing between Shiriel and Ezekiel. So this does have romantic themes, but it is more like a relationship. They do get married as they're going out to Babylon. So the majority of the book, they are already married. But I think the most endearing is when they actually realize and appreciate each other's gifts and talents 
and aren't threatened by each other, but they're able to use that to work together and to serve together. They're better together than they are apart. And just because my way is different doesn't mean it's wrong. God's gifted me in this way. And because I'm not gifted the same way as my husband doesn't mean that we're wrong. We're just meant to work together to bring out the best in each other. You know what I mean? So so that's the most endearing part. Yes. And how that's just so like real life, what we see in Christian husbands and wives. And that's beautiful. Now, can you share either your favorite or most challenging part of writing this book? Let's see here. I think, I think there's a lot, as we've talked earlier, there's a lot of, of me working through my stuff in this. So I think this is very dear to my heart because, because I know that the Lord will meet me where I'm at even if it doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like, I know that the Lord is for me and for my marriage and, and that he has plans. Jeremiah is actually a contemporary. So when you have, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for a hope and a future, that's actually a message from Jeremiah to the exiles out in Babylon. So I have that going directly to Ezekiel and Shiri's congregation, if you will. So the Lord is not gone, even if you think you're in the wilderness. The Lord is not gone. If you are in a pagan culture who does not honor God, the Lord is still there with you. And he is not going to just abandon you out in a foreign land with no hope. He has plans, for good plans for you for hope and a future. What a timeless truth. And for even today, I think for whether they're in Syria or Ukraine or America, you know, God meets us where we're at. And I'm so grateful that he does and that there are stories written by by Christian authors that are fiction, but still hold the the promises of God. So that's beautiful. This sounds like an amazing story. And I'm so glad that you've come on the show to chat with us. For our listeners, you can have a chance to win a copy of Ezekiel's song simply by going to historicalbookworm.com and clicking on our giveaway tab. And I also share all of our announcements and all giveaways on our Facebook Historical Bookworm listeners private group. If you want to join there and keep up on all of our updates, you can do that. So Naomi, how can our listeners learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. My best way is on my newsletter, naomicraig.com. I do offer a free biblical fiction novella It's called On Desolate Heights, and that is the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Other than that, I am on Instagram, Naomi Craig Author, or you'll find me hanging out at Biblical Fiction Aficionados on Facebook groups. And that's just a really neat readers group with that talks about historical fiction set in Bible and early church time. So we've got a great group of people over there. All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a delight chatting with you. It has been my honor. Thank you for having me, Darcy and Kylie. And now, a message from American Christian fiction writers, public relations liaison, Cynthia Rukti. Created with Christian fiction reader fans in mind, the 2022 ACFW Story Fest. Come be part of our inaugural year of hosting ACFW Story Fest, formerly the Christian Fiction Readers Retreat. It takes place Thursday, September 8th, 2022, 
in the afternoon through Saturday, September 10th at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. Come celebrate story and your favorite Christian fiction authors right on the premises of the ACFW Conference, where hundreds of Christian fiction authors gather each year. You can learn more about StoryFest at www.acfwstoryfest.com. Hope to see you there. Now for a pinch of the past. On today's Pinch of the Past, we have part three of our Sears and Roebuck special. As you may know, Sears and Roebuck was a company and they shipped to rural areas in America. Um, They are definitely some of the first to offer a wide range of household and business items per shipping. Their catalogs were sometimes called a wish book. So we're looking at medicines, and I just want to read right off the top. It says, this special branch of our business is in charge of competent chemists in Regis County and Europe in handling and compiling drugs and chemicals. They have strict instructions to examine thoroughly before use. So some of the medicines back then, the same as today, were lethal. And so Sears and Roebuck, they didn't want people just popping a bunch of pills. They're saying, look at the instructions thoroughly. And for good reason. So under special medicines, they had arsenic complexion wafers, which ladies would rub on their faces. The ad reads that these wafers are from a famous French physician and are perfectly harmless when used according to directions. They're an excellent remedy for rough discolored skin. One box cost 16 cents per dozen, a total of $4.25. Arsenic? Yes, the cost of poison. Oh, those poor ladies. Wow. I mean, they weren't ingesting it, so it wasn't getting in as large quantities, but you absorb things through your skin. So, I yeah, mean, and every day, touching up your nose. and That would eventually build up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they used what iron, mercury, and lead. They had lead powders as well for makeup. Right. For the oh my gosh! It's terrible. It's so crazy because especially with arsenic, that had been the poison of kings for centuries, and they're gonna put it in makeup, like they didn't know better. Perfectly harmless. That's interesting. If you research a lady for six weeks and she doesn't die, then it's perfectly harmless, you know. But something like that. But I mean, we use cell phones and on the fine lines of every pamphlet that comes with a cell phone, it says this can cause cancer. So I guess we're kind of in the same boat in some instances. This is true. So under medicine, they also had beef, wine, and iron broth. So the ad reads, universally known for its great strength giving and flesh producing qualities. Made from the finest imported cherry wines, freshly made extract of beef and pure salts of iron. So it was guaranteed to make men buffer and ladies healthier. So it's both iron supplement and with the beef extract and things like that, it's got the gelatin and collagen in it. So honestly, if you didn't have too much iron in there, that probably wasn't a terrible supplement for building muscle and strengthening joints. Wow, that's a good point. They also had blackberry balsam 
And the ad reads, this is a remedy that should be kept in every family's cabinet in readiness for sudden attacks of bowel trouble and especially in times of prevailing cholera. It cannot be excelled in curling relief conditions of the bowels. It is cleansing, regulating, quieting, and healing. Oh, so not like castor oil. This was actually supposed to regulate, not just cleanse. So, okay, that's fascinating. I wonder if it worked. Not that I would try it, but I wonder if it worked. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like it might be better than castor oil. I don't know. I Yeah, stay away from castor oil. They also offered cod liver oil. It was imported from Norway, and it was carefully selected from the livers of cod. They claimed that it had a pleasant, bland taste and used to treat weak lungs, coughs, and colds. Weak lungs, coughs, and colds. Now, my mom and dad used to take cod liver oil because it's a natural blood thinner, and it can help regulate things. It's got good fats in it. It's supposed to, you know, like be good for your cholesterol and stuff. But it does not have a bland taste. It tastes like fish. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. I've probably smelled like fish too. <laughs> yeah. So the next is essence of Jamaican ginger. This actually doesn't sound too bad, especially compared to other medicines that they had listed. It was made from ginger root and contained stimulating, warming, healing properties. And it was used to treat stomach and bowel troubles. It was sold at 36 cents per bottle. Now, I used ginger when I was pregnant with my son for morning sickness, and it was a godsend. I don't care for the taste, but just being able to get by and I could just, it worked on demand. You just drink the tea, real organic ginger tea, and it, it, it worked. So I wonder if this Jamaican ginger is probably a decent thing to have in your cabinet. Actually, it probably was. Ginger can be really good for settling your stomach and just overall health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They sold herbal teas as well and fig laxatives along with other types of laxatives. They had a Pepsi powder. These were sold promising to treat sore, sour stomach, heartburn, indigestion, belching of wind. Now, it said that you must use for two weeks to see the benefits and the powders were sometimes made of caraway and mint. Fascinating. They probably didn't taste terrible. That's interesting that they say you had to use them for a while. Maybe, presumably, it was supposed to neutralize an acid. Yeah, so we may have started with arsenic. It sounds like there was actually some decent sort of herbal remedies included. This next one is was simply called female pills, and they were sold for $8.50 with 120 pills in each bottle. They claimed that these pills were made of herbs like uh, pennyroyal, tansy, and cottonwood bark. They came with a warning that they were very powerful and should be used cautiously. Really? Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder. They sold worm cakes and worm syrup for children, liver and kidney treatment pills, obesity pills, um, and the directions were to drink lots of water and exercise with the pills, which, again, that kind of makes sense. They had petroleum jellies like Vaseline and Cosmolin. They said that these were for treating cuts, bruises, and burns. They had pink pills for pale people, and it 
They claim to cure pale or sallow complexions. I wonder what was in those. <laughs> I know because I would think a sallow complexion would be like something maybe on, if it were a health problem, it would be something on the verge of jaundice. So I wonder what was in those pink things. Well, that's a good point. I know I kind of shuddered when I saw the worm cakes and worm syrup for children. I don't think I've even come into contact with a kiddo with a child that has worms. So I wouldn't even think about that. But like in that time period, maybe poor families or families that just didn't know and maybe you didn't have a readily available refrigerator, although they did have refrigerators back then. It's not like everyone could afford them. I mean, how do you store these things? So. I mean, these days, if you live on a farm, you regularly deworm, deworm your livestock because you're just, they're constantly around it. The grass may be contaminated with eggs or whatever. So I guess, oh, you know, maybe point, kids raised on a farm might be just running into contact with it. And they, so, you know, every so often we treat them, you know. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I think you must be right. Wow, I didn't even think of that. So they also sold sarsaparilla and they had toothpaste wax, a witch hazel, toilet cream, root beer was sold as a blood purifier. Really? Yes. So they had healthy temperance beverages like root beer. And then just beneath the family's remedies, they had a feature for laudanum, a tincture of laudanum for different syrups. and with the caution to use carefully. That included opium as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, That's kind of scary to think about. It is to think of opium just being readily available for anyone and used properly. It did its job when it was necessary and it was fine. But wow, just to have that available to anyone mm -hmm. who wanted to order from the Sears and Robot catalog. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a powerful drug. It's scary to think about. So they had sweet springs of nitrate and glycerin, peppermint, a tincture of arnica extracts like lemon peel, vanilla, ginger, licorice powders for laxatives. They also had turpentine for internal and external use, ammonia, ep <laughs> epsom salt, insect powders, and rat killer. Wow. Yeah. I guess their chemists were busy. Oh my goodness, I know. It's quite a mix there. So I guess the next time that you're going to your drugstore, your pharmacy, you can look around at what's there. And it's really interesting to see the herbal remedies that we still have today, though. Like they were using back then. So there's some good. Toss out the bad. Keep exactly. The good. We'll, we'll throw away the arsenic, but we might keep the ginger tea. Yeah, there you go. And that wraps up our Sears and Robux special. I hope this is Time for our bookworm review. Diamond in the Rough by Jin Tirano. This is book two in the American Heiresses series. To save her family from financial ruin, Miss Poppy Garrison accepts an unusual proposition to participate in the New York social season in exchange for her grandmother settling a family loan that has unexpectedly come due. Ill-equipped to handle the intricacies of mingling within the New York 400, Poppy becomes embroiled in one hilarious fiasco after another doomed to suffer a grand societal failure instead of being deemed the diamond of the first water her grandmother longs for her to become. Reginald Blackburn, second son of a duke, has been forced to travel to America to help his cousin Charles Wynne, Earl of Lonsdale, find an American heiress to wed in order to shore up his family estate that is in desperate need of funds. Reginald himself has no interest in finding an heiress to marry, but when Poppy's grandmother asks him to give etiquette lessons to Poppy, 
he swiftly discovers he may be in for much more than he bargained for. Toronto's take on pairing a no-frills poppy with etiquette lessons from Reginald, who is straighter than a ruler, will leave the reader laughing out loud at some of the antics and conversations the two of them have. Toronto is a go-to author for readers of historical romance because her characters are always uniquely funny and standoutable, even if that's not a word. There's a bit of mystery thrown in for Spice, but the quirks of falling in love amid unusual circumstances will keep the reader entertained long into the night. The often hilarious and always swooning romance writing style of Toronto will have readers coming back for the next book in the series. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.